you have your Bibles this morning, you can open them to 2 Kings chapter 5. If you grabbed an outline on your way in this morning, the fill in the blanks are there for you. We'll be looking at a story that bridges almost the entire chapter or the entire chapter 5 of 2 Kings, and yet we'll be looking at the first half of the story. And as we start, I'd love to read just the first six verses to set the scene for what's happening with this man named Naaman. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram, or maybe in your Bible it says Syria. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now bands from Syria had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Syria said. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. This is the word of the Lord. Some conversations we have in this world get seared into our minds forever. I think I was about five years old when my dad took me to go play remote control cars up on that park and ride on 580 and Center Street there in Castro Valley. We got this new car and I'm jetting it around the parking lot and, and having a good old time and and then at one point, my dad grabs the control and, and puts it down, and he, and he comes down to my level. He says, buddy, I've got something sad to tell you. Your mom is sick. She has something called cancer. As a five-year-old, I had no idea what that meant. I had no idea what that meant to a 30-something, 32-year-old woman with two young kids at home who just got this diagnosis that her life might be ending soon. But I knew that my dad was trying to express that something really sad was happening in our family. And that moment just got seared into my brain. None of us ever expect suffering. But when suffering comes into our lives, suffering is the great equalizer. It doesn't matter how high up you are, when you get that diagnosis or you hear that prognosis, you go from here to here. If you're doing okay and you get that news, you go from here to here. If you're rich and you get that news, if you're poor and you get that news, 
If you're black, if you're white, if you're a woman, if you're a man, if you're a child, if you're an adult and suffering comes into your world, it just levels you. It puts you at rock bottom with anyone else who's gone through that same thing. And this is one of the reasons that we keep advocating these care ministries is because when those moments come, we feel so alone because we feel like we're at the bottom of this pit and it's dark. We have no idea how to climb out. And yet we say, hey, there are a lot of people in that pit, right? And so these, these care ministries sometimes just kind of turn the light on a little bit and say, look around, we're all at rock bottom together. A story we read in 2 Kings 5 is a story that, that from its very beginning tries to show us how suffering can drop anyone to the floor. Naaman is a man who is a powerful man. He's not a God-fearing man. He's not an Israelite. He, he's not a good man, probably, in the eyes of the people of God. He's far from God. He's a pagan. But suffering hits him just like anybody else. You could read the first verse here in chapter 5 where the author of 2 Kings tries to draw out how lofty Naaman was in the eyes of the world. It says Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Syria. He was a great man in the sight of his master. He was highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a valiant soldier. But... He had leprosy. No matter how high up the social ladder he had climbed or how much money or wealth he had amassed, how much power he had in his country, he was at rock bottom just like anybody else because he found himself with this disease that can take out anybody. And we've all heard the stories of leprosy. It's incurable. It destroys your body, it destroys your spirit, it destroys your connection with your family. You end up exiled alone, dying slowly and painfully, even though you can't feel pain on the outside of a city because no one can touch you because of how contagious your incurable disease is. Name was at rock bottom, from the highest heights to the deepest depths, the moment he started seeing that first spot emerging on his body. There's something about suffering that draws us to people. It doesn't matter when we read the story that Naaman was the enemy. It doesn't matter that we read that the Lord had given victory to Syria over Israel through Naaman. We don't care about that. We feel for people because when we're in times of suffering, we know that we're all just human. And we hate to see people hurt. And God had provided a, a beautiful rescue for Naaman. This girl existed, a servant girl in Naaman's household. And we see that the hand of God had brought her into that household. She was a follower of the God of Israel, which means that she would, was captured by Syria when they were conquering Israel. He captured this little girl as a slave, brought him back to his hometown, and she served in his house. But when she saw Naaman suffering, this girl, even though she was his enemy, even though she was his slave, even though she was a prisoner of war, she sees Naaman and says, I think I can help. 
Her mind goes back to the country of Israel where a prophet named Elisha was doing miraculous, powerful things. And so this girl declares, there is a prophet in my country who can heal you of your incurable illness. And she brings word to her uplink and they bring word to Naaman that this young girl is saying that there's a cure in your enemy's camp. There's a cure under the God of Israel, Yahweh. There's a cure among one of the prophets of your enemies in this foreign land. If you can just get to him, you will be saved. In a lot of ways, we would kind of expect that Naaman would brush off this idea. You know, of course, this is like a miraculous cure. But if you've ever been in a time of suffering, everyone has a miraculous cure for you, don't they? If you're laughing, you've probably gone through something hard and had someone bring their miraculous cure to you. Oh, I'm so sorry that you have stage four cancer. Have you tried eating organic? Like, really? I know this guy, this doctor, he's amazing. I I, I heard about this nutritional therapy. I heard about these vitamin infusions. I've I've, I've heard about these fruit pills that you could take, right? I've I've heard about this, this... Treatment that no one's ever tried before. You should try going to Mexico for this treatment or go to Canada for this treatment or go drink this yak tea in the Himalayas, right? There's this cure for you and it worked for my friend. It'll surely work for you. And in times of desperation, we try a lot of those things, but eventually we get sick of hearing everyone's miracle cure. Everyone has the silver bullet that's going to eradicate our disease. But desperate times also call for desperate measures. For Naaman, it didn't matter that this girl was his enemy. It didn't matter that she was just a slave. It didn't matter that the cure was in a place that he had no access to. He can't just waltz into Israel as the commander of their enemy's army. And Naaman was desperate for healing. And as crazy and mystical and difficult and far away as this cure sounded, Naaman knew he needed it. So Naaman goes to his boss, the king of Syria, and he says, I need to take leave. I want to go to Israel and seek after this miracle cure. And the king of Syria says, by all means, right? He wants to see this man healed if there's any possibility. And so he loads up Naaman with all these gifts to kind of bribe his way into the country. Gold and silver and clothes and all these animals, this entourage. And he sends him on his way to go find his miracle in a foreign land. Every great story has a story beneath the story. That's sometimes the moral of the story. And this story is no different. Now, on one hand, this is a story about a man who gets his miracle, right? And and many of us want that story because we desperately need a miracle. Many of us are reading this and we're thinking, well, maybe there's a miracle cure for my thing. Maybe if I just find the right prophet to go to. Maybe if I just go to the right healing service. Maybe if I just go to the right prayer group. Maybe if I just join the right prayer ministry. Or maybe if I go to the care ministry. Or maybe if I start coming to church and I bargain with God and I clean up my life. Maybe if I do these things, what God is telling me is that he can bring healing to my disease. Healing to my relationship. Healing to the brokenness. Healing to this depression It's worth a shot, and if this is God saying that my cure is around the corner, I need it, right? And and surely that is one of the points of this passage. That's the biggest thing we hear when we read a story about a man getting cured. Spoiler alert, cured. 
But there's a thread beneath the surface of this story that's, I believe, even more powerful. Even more powerful because I think we all know that most of the time we're faced with an incurable disease. We don't get miraculous healing. No matter how many juice pills we take or vitamin infusions or yak teas we drink, the numbers keep getting worse. Then when the doctor says you've got a few months to live, most of the time it, it ends up being a few months. And we all know the stories of people who are healed, but sometimes that's not us. And so sometimes stories about miracle cures make us angry because our friend didn't get his. In those moments, we need to look beneath the surface of the story and see what deeper lesson God is trying to teach us through this text. I think for us, as we look into this text, if you want to see what God is truly trying to change in our hearts, we need to pay close attention to the power dynamics in this story. You know, this is something that maybe you've never noticed before as you've read through the story of Naaman, even if you've studied it 30 times but after we talk through it today, you're not going to be able to unsee it. So I might be either enlightening or ruining this text for you. Pay close attention to the power dynamics of this story. Because when you read the story of Naaman in 2 Kings 5, we see only two types of people. We see people who are immensely powerful. And we see people who are immensely powerless. We see the powerful people. We see Naaman. This lofty, mighty man of valor, valor in the country of Syria. We see the king of Syria sending him on his way. We see the king of Israel receiving Naaman, these powerful men. And then we see people who are absolutely powerless. This is a story that is pushed along at every turn by servants and slaves. And this is a story where Naaman ultimately goes from being one of the most powerful men in the world to becoming utterly powerless himself. We even see that here in the text as the corner turns on Naaman. When the king of Syria sends Naaman to Israel, he says that it sent him with a letter to the king of Israel that read this, with this letter, I'm sending my servant Naaman to you that you may cure him of his leprosy. It doesn't say I'm sending a mighty man, Naaman, to you. It doesn't say I'm sending the commander of my army, Naaman. It says I'm sending my servant, Naaman. This is a story about a man who experienced his healing from going to, starting from a lofty place and turning into a, a servant. This power dynamic is at play throughout the entire story. Even when Naaman arrives at the country of Israel, the king of Israel thinks that what's happening is a power play. He sees an entourage. He sees Naaman, the commander of his enemy's army, coming at him with gold and silver and clothes. And the letter comes to the king of Israel and he opens it and says, cure Naaman of his leprosy. And his heart starts beating. I just imagine if your enemy sent you a bunch of money and said, use this to cure my mom of her stage five lymphoma, can't do that. Who can do that? And the king of Israel is knowing that. He says, am I God that I can kill and give life? I can't cure this guy. And you think of the dilemma the king of Israel is in at that moment, right? If, if he sends Naaman back and says, no, Syria will invade. If he brings Naaman in and is unable to cure him, which is likely, Syria will invade. 
And if he brings Naaman in and he miraculously cures him of his disease and sends him back to Syria, now the commander of the Syrian army is well in health and can rise up and invade Israel. He's between a rock and a hard place. Like This is a power play. Syria is trying to advance. They're trying to blame it on me. And so the king is tearing his clothes. He's mourning. He's saying, I'm not God. I can't fix this man's life. And word gets to the prophet, Elisha. You know, I said there's only two types of people in the story. I kind of lied. There is actually a third. It's the prophet Elisha. Right? There's the powerful, and there's the powerless. And then there's Elisha. A man who, in the eyes of the world, is insignificant. He used to be a farmer. He was a disciple of a guy named Elijah. He walked around kind of like John the Baptist or Jesus or something, just kind of bouncing around from place to place. Didn't have an extravagant lifestyle. He was a normal, everyday, powerless person in the nation of Israel. But he was a conduit of the power of God. This is a man that everywhere he went, amazing, crazy things happened. Right? Elisha's the one with all the crazy miracles in the Old Testament. Right? The guys are eating the stew. We're like, ugh, food poisoning, right? And, and Elisha throws salt in it, and now it's like, good. Who is this guy? Right? The guy loses his axe and a leg. He's like, my axe, right? And Elisha goes, like the, like the X-wing, like, brings the axe to the surface. Elisha does all the cool miracles in the Old Testament. And what we see as we watch Elisha is he's kind of this like rogue guy. And yet the power of God is so tangible in him that everything he touches turns to gold in a sense. And, and so he's the third type of person in this story. He comes on the scene as an ordinary man with immense power from God. And Elijah hears what's happening in this power play between the king of Israel, the king of Syria, and Naaman. And he says to the king of Israel, why have you torn your robes, in verse 8? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there's a prophet in Israel. So the king of Israel sends Naaman to Elisha. Now, if this was a superhero Bible, Elisha would have, like, the big, like, E on his chest or something. Right? <laughs> and we read the story, we're like, man, I want to be Elisha. And can you imagine if you had the power to heal people of incurable diseases? Right? You would like be the best hospital chaplain ever. Right? You just hang out there behind the desk and the, the ambulance would come, the gurney would come out, you'd be like, hold on, hold on, and the person would be back up, like, all right, thanks, right? And the hospital would go out of business, you'd get fired, right? Elisha, wouldn't it be amazing to have the power of God at your fingertips, to be able to walk to someone who's dying and bring them life? Right? When we go through those times of suffering, we wish we had that power to go to our loved one and heal them, to go to our child and pull them out of prison, to put them in their right minds, to go to our friend and change their lives and give them the money that they lack. We wish that God would work through us that way. And so we read the story and we salivate and we pray and say, God, let me be like Elisha. But Elisha is not the main character of this story. Naaman is. And when we suffer, we're not like Elisha, are we? We're like Naaman. We find ourselves helpless, alone, grasping at straws, doing anything we can to find our miracle. I'm just hoping at every turn, I hope this one's going to work. I 
As I watched that video this morning, I couldn't help but think about what it would have been like to be those parents walking through their kids' upbringing. All the advice I'm sure they got. If you discipline your son more, he wouldn't be like that. Hey, you discipline your son too much, that's why he's like that. Hey, you should send him to this place up in the woods. It'll be good for him. Hey, I wouldn't send him to that place up in the woods. I don't think it'll be good for him. A lot of told you so's, a lot of glares, a lot of awkward conversations, a lot of temper tantrums in Target. And this couple just trying their best to do what seems right to make their son know that they love him and that they're for him and that life doesn't have to be like this. That's Naaman. Walking up the street towards the prophet's house, and he's got this image in his mind. He brings it out later of, of what's going to happen when he gets there, right? He's got this way that it's going to work. He's going to get there, and Elisha's going to come out in his robes, and he's going to wave his hands in the air and over the spot. He's going to conjure down the power of God, and pff, the leprosy will be cured. And Naaman's saying, Please let that happen to me. I know it can happen. And he's walking towards Elisha's house, just waiting to meet his miracle man, to receive his powerful show of force, his miracle cure. Far from home, in an enemy territory, under the reign of a God he's never worshipped, and he sees Elisha's house in the distance, and a man comes out. Doesn't look like a prophet. The man comes up to, Eli- to Naaman and he says, uh, I'm not Elisha, I'm just a messenger. Elisha says, go take a bath in the Jordan River seven times and you'll be fine. Imagine you went to the Himalayas to drink the yak tea. <laughs> you go up to the Sherpa's house, or I, don't even, I don't know, I'm making up this thing. All right. You go up to this holy man's house thing. I don't even know why I'm here. I'm a Christian, right? But I guess I'm going to meet the whoever. And This intern comes out. He's like, I know you spent your life savings on this trek. Go grab some Dasani at the general store. No, the Dasani here comes from our, our water source. It's great. Swish it. Spit it out. Swish it, spit it out. Seven times. You gotta do it seven times. Your cancer will be gone. That's my miracle cure. Dasani. Naaman even says that the Jordan River. We've got better rivers in Syria than the Jordan River. Seriously, that I've risked my life. I swallowed my pride. I humbled myself. I listened to this slave girl. I humiliated myself. I walked hundreds of miles. I came into this enemy land. I started worshiping a God that wasn't my God just to get into this place, and I followed him, and now I have to go wash in the Jordan River. I didn't even get to meet the prophet. Naaman almost misses his miracle because the solution seemed too simple. 
And some of you know exactly how Naaman feels or how Naaman felt. Because you felt that exact same way when you poured out your heart to a friend about the suffering you were going through and they said, hey, why don't you come to church with me? And I said, hey, let me pray for you. And they said, hey, you know what? Why don't you come to this support group with me? And you want to say, excuse me? Did you just hear what I said was going on in my life? You think sitting in a church service is going to change my life? You think your prayer is going to help me? You think your friends gathering around me and calling on the name of your God is going to do something? You know I've tried everything, right? You know I've tried this therapy and that therapy and that treatment and this treatment. I went to this place. I spent all my money on all this stuff. And that's your solution that God can fix me if I just trust him with it? It's humiliating. If you're paying attention to the power dynamics in this story, you'll notice that Naaman about, was about to walk away from his miracle when he was stopped by no other than a group of servants who said, Naaman, 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 this is good news. If, he, if, if Elisha would have asked you to do something crazy, you would have done it. Right? You would have drank the tea in the Himalayas, right? You would, have, you would have done everything. You would have climbed up the tallest mountain. You would have found the feather of the golden eagle, right? You would have done anything to find your cure. He wants you to go get in the river. This is good news. Try it. So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Naaman almost missed his healing because the path seemed too simple. But the moral of the story is powerful things happen when we simply trust God. And I know we, want, we read this and we think, okay, well, where's my miracle? Where's my healing? And Jesus actually draws that out. He talks about the Naaman passage in Luke chapter 4. He says, there were several lepers in the country of Israel when Naaman was healed, and none of them received their healing except for Naaman. And you know what I said, that if I was Elijah, I'd go into the hospital and heal everybody? Elijah didn't do that. Elisha overlooked every single leper in the entire country of Israel, and the only time he ever healed a leper, according to Jesus, was this one time. The moral of the story is not we're all going to get our miracle, and I think that's discouraging for a moment, but in a sense, we know that, right? The moral of the story is that powerful things happen when we simply trust God. This story beneath the surface gives us a beautiful picture of the pathway God has for us as we walk through suffering. Humility, obedience, and transformation. Humility, obedience, transformation. Naaman, the exalted man, was humbled. He heard a word from the Lord, he obeyed it, and he found transformation. As I listened to that story of the kid who was in prison, I kept wondering, is the end of the story going to be him out of prison? 
Is it going to be them saying, we prayed, we found this group, and now our son is, is clean and sober. Our son is far from prison. Our son is doing well. Our son is serving the Lord. Our son is the CEO of a company or a pastor of a church or an amazing husband, right? Is that what's going to happen? Is God going to do the miracle? So far, God does, hasn't done the miracle in this kid's life. But, but the moral of that video is that as this couple walked through the humility of trying to navigate life with their child, and they obeyed the Lord along the way, and they trusted him and prayed together and clung to him that God brought transformation into their lives. God brought transformation into their community. God brought them a gift of service into the church and this faith prison care that God is bringing transformation all over this world. He has not yet done the original miracle they've been asking for. But as this couple obeyed the Lord in humility, he brought forth transformation. And we see this as the example of Jesus when he walked the earth. Right? Philippians 2 talks about that, that Jesus was in the very nature God, but he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. And so he humbled himself and became a servant and was obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. When Jesus walked the earth, he walked in this pattern of humility, obedience, exaltation. And for us, that's transformation. We prayed a lot that my mom wouldn't pass away from her disease. And God did answer that prayer several times and helped her get through the first bout and the second bout and Gave her 30 more years or so of life, a little less than that, before the cancer finally got her. And yet as we sat here a few years back with hundreds of people in this room at my mom's funeral, I was reminded just how, how much transformation God did through a woman who never got the miracle she was looking for who learned to trust him on the way, whose entire family came to Christ along the way, who was able to have impact in our local community and do good along the way, who built a reputation as someone who does good and impacted lives along the way, who mentored other teachers along the way, who was a help to our cancer support ministry along the way, who several of us in this room look to as an encouragement along the way, and she never got her miracle. Uh, but... But as the cancer humbled her and she started to walk in obedience with the Lord, he brought transformation into this world through her life. Maybe you'll get your miracle. And maybe you won't. But if you walk humbly with the Lord and obey him, even in the simplest things of joining a prayer group, getting into a support group, jumping into community, coming to church, whatever God is calling you to do, God's going to bring transformation in you and through you and all around you along the way. I mean, suffering is the great equalizer. Today you find yourself at rock bottom. Maybe it's time you take step one and make it in obedience to the Lord.